Okay, this morning I'm going to talk to you guys about the... Uh, I'm go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. We're going to cover something that I've covered before here. So forgive me if there's some redundancy here. I tried to reframe it in a way that's more relevant, uh, that maybe takes a little bit of a different angle on it. But several weeks ago when Peter asked me to preach... Following up to last week's sermon out of 1 Timothy, he asked me to preach on the authority of Scripture. And the more I thought about it, um, this is one of my favorite subjects, by the way, so I can talk about it all day regardless if you all feel like it's redundant or not. <laughs> but, the, uh, but the more I thought about it, the, um, I also thought that it would be relevant for us to talk about what flows from the authority of Scripture, and that's the sufficiency of Scripture. And again, I've taught on that too. Um, but today... I want us to start, uh, like I normally do, with a few questions, uh, with a, hopefully an illustration that helps, us get, uh, helps get us thinking in a certain way. What do we typically use, um, think of it this way, what do we typically use in order to help us define words that we use? It's a pretty simple thing, at least for those of us who are older than the generation of a smartphone who've actually seen this particular object, but, but um, what do we use to define words? A dictionary. Yeah, absolutely. There's not much in print anymore. I have an app on my phone, the dictionary.com app, which I use if I, if I run into a word that I'm unfamiliar with. I mean, even on Kindle, if you're familiar with that device, if you read regularly, there's a dictionary included. You just hold your finger on the word and up pops the, the definition of it if you're uh, confused at all. So a dictionary is used then to give us a bedrock of language in order to operate on the same plane of thought. Okay, A dictionary is used then to give us a bedrock of language in order to operate on the same plane of thought. Words then are supposed to have meaning, yes? Would we all assume that's true? If I say that you're sitting on a pew, you would know what I, thought, uh, what I meant by that, right? We're not going to get into philosophy today and whether or not it's actually a pew or a tree or anything like that. But. So here's a question, though. Who determines those meanings? Right? Who determines those meanings? Why do we feel as a culture that we can no longer adhere to fundamental definitions of what it means to be in reality, to be in creation, to look around us? Why is it that we feel that we can no longer identify a man as a man and a woman as a woman? Why is it now that marriage is confused and the assumption of the Western world is that union is possible between those of the same sex? Why are we encouraged to take the word of a, quote, gender-confused four-year-old as gospel and to deny that child hormone therapy in the name of modern civilization as tantamount to child abuse? Why is that the case? Why is the status of an unborn child up for debate as an issue of women's health? Why are Christians confused about the role, the extent, and the authority of the government when it comes to things like mask mandates and responses to disease? I could frame it this way. By what standard do we decide the nature of our existence? How do we know what we know? 
Doug Wilson, like him or not, hits the nail on the head when he states that many of the modern battles we face today are largely battles over the dictionary. Largely battles over the dictionary. We struggle with definitions because we cannot actually define our terms. We cannot define our terms because defining our terms in our age assumes a knowable and absolute definition about the particular thing that we are talking about. In other words, we do not have a rock with which to build on. We only have sand which constantly shifts under our feet. This is the philosophy of postmodernism. This is the air that we breathe in the Western world. This is relativism, the standard by which the world judges things, judges things to them is in the eyes of the beholder. But that's not the Christian way of thinking. Now, the passage of Scripture that we're going to move to today, and you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, if you would, verses 24 through 29. The passage of Scripture that we are covering today, it's always fun to give a topical sermon because as someone who loves Scripture and thinks about how to apply it on a regular basis, context, 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 context. So you always have to feel the need as you get up here for a topical sermon to give a little bit of context to the whole passage. So in Matthew chapter 7, where we're going to land today at the end of that chapter, is actually the end of a famous piece of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount gives many moral imperatives which both encourage the believer and indict us in our sins showing them to be not merely matters of external conformity to law, but matters of the heart. Examples of these things, starting in chapter 5, include the Beatitudes, describing believers as salt and light, that Christ came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Through the rest of chapter 5, he moves into admonishing us on the depth of sin in the forms of anger, lust, divorce, taking oaths, retaliation against those who have wronged you. As we move into chapter 6, we learn what it means to give to the needy and how we are to pray and how we are not to be like the Pharisees who boast about it in front of others, but to do it in secret because we know that we have a reward from our Father. As we move into the rest of chapter 6, he covers fasting, the pursuit of righteousness over earthly treasures, showing the sinfulness of anxiety, and we finally arrive in chapter 7. Here in this chapter, he gives definitions proper to the Christian idea of judgment of others. It's one of the most famous passages taken out of context and used to bludgeon us to death in the culture, but they have no idea what it means. Proper perspective, right? We move on from there. Proper perspective in considering God's goodness in prayer. How to treat others as you would want to be treated, the golden rule. And then... Funnily enough, how to judge a man by his fruit, right after the passage that tells us that we shouldn't judge others, right? And that people, finally, before we get here, that people who are within the church who claim to know the Lord, though they may be part of the local church, may actually not know him, okay? And then we arrive where we're arriving now. And the capstone of Jesus' sermon, he finishes with words about the words he has just spoken. Okay, all of that summarization, right? All of those things, which, semi, which some of which apply to what I, those questions that I just asked. Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the words and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had to be because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So, many of you know that I've been teaching through the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and uh, some of you were present during those uh, combined training hours at the beginning of this year. Those were the times in which I covered the authority of Scripture, really the whole doctrine of Scripture. We mentioned four aspects of Scripture when we covered the doctrine of Scripture. We, We talked about its necessity that it was necessary for divine revelation to come to us, for God to condescend in words that we could understand in order for us to be saved. That nature alone is sufficient to condemn man, but God must have come to us in the form of his word in order to uh, illustrate for us and give us the words and understanding to be saved. The necessity of Scripture. Then we cover the authority of Scripture, which I'm going to talk about shortly. And then we covered the clarity of Scripture, also sometimes called the perspicuity of Scripture. And what that means is that there are pieces of Scripture that are difficult to understand, but one of the principles that we gleaned from that was that we always interpret the difficult in light of the easy to understand. Whenever we hit a piece of Scripture that's more difficult, well, what's related to that passage? What do the more clear passages say about it? Can we glean anything from that that helps us interpret it? And finally, we talked about sufficiency. Peter, like I said, when he asked me to preach several weeks ago, asked me initially to preach on the authority. But when I started thinking through it, because I've taught on it before, um, I, I wanted to land in Matthew 7. I wanted to land in Matthew 7. And both things are actually covered here, the authority and the sufficiency. So I'm going to go ahead and give us a definition right now, and we're going to see if it actually lines up with what the Scriptures teach. It says, rather than, this is a paragraph, or chapter 1, paragraph 4 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It's basically word for word of the Westminster Confession from 1644 also. It says, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Remember how when we talked about this, I'm going to have to recover a little bit, that anytime someone appeals to a higher authority, it turns into a circular argument. Okay? The question is not what authority do you appeal to. As soon as you move it up the ladder, As soon as you move it up the ladder and asking questions, you have to appeal to an authority, right? And that authority eventually gets to a self-proposing authority, and we have that in the Word of God. The Word of God is true because it's the Word of God, because it's from God, period. Okay, there is no other standard by which we can judge. The laws of logic do not allow any deviation from that. Okay, they do not allow any deviation from that. So Scripture, there's point one here under authority, Scripture has authority because of its author. Scripture has authority because of its author. 
as we're going to begin to work through this text, I want us to focus on the first part of verse 24 and then verses 28 and 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, who hears these words of mine. And when Jesus finished, this is verse 28, saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. Why did he have authority? Why were they astonished? Because they are his words. He defines those things that he just covered, that overview that I gave. How many of you have been to a lecture where you were bored out of your mind? Yeah. Where the person didn't have any energy, right? Well, they, didn't, they maybe even had a mastery of the su- subject, but maybe they weren't good communicators. Maybe they felt no emotion or energy toward what they were saying. I remember my first physiology class in Marshall back in 2001 or 2002. The professor was very intelligent. He could not communicate worth anything, okay? He was a person who belonged in the lab, not lecturing in front of students. I despised that class. Then I retook physiology before I started working in anesthesia, and I loved it. Why? Because the professor there made it energetic, made it knowable, helped you understand how it was relevant to what you were doing, as opposed to just bland words on a textbook. Well, how much more... When Christ, who is the author of not only the words of the Bible, but all of creation, how much more when he speaks does he have authority? With what energy must he have conveyed the very truths which he created our reality on? Right? The very truths which he must have created our reality on, which he did do. That is how he taught with uh, so much authority. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this is the New King James Version. I like the way it says it better. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, who is what? The author and finisher of our faith. The author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ is able to teach with such authority because he is the living God, our creator. And as such is the author of history itself. He is the one who created it in a certain way, with certain inviolable laws, precepts, and moral judgments. He gets the authoritative word on all matters related to creation and our operation within it. And no one can look at him and say he has not that right. To say it another way, Christ defines truth because he is the word himself. Himself the way. Himself the truth. Himself all of life. Now, this can start to get above us, and by what I mean by that is we can intellectualize this, right? This can become just things that we assent to intellectually. It can get to the point where it has no effect on our life. And I would actually argue in Western culture that is exactly what has happened. That is exactly what has happened. Doug Wilson, in a blog post called The Coming Collapse of Secular Man, says this. He said, truth comes to us in two ways. The ultimate truth is incarnate. The ultimate truth, the ultimate word, came and dwelt among us. The other way that truth comes to us is by way of witness or testimony. 
Jesus referred to this kind of truth in his exchange with Pilate in John chapter 18. It was for this reason that Jesus was born into the world, in order to bear witness to the truth. And this is why Pilate asked the question in the first place. He goes on to say this, and this is why also why everything hinges on the correspondence view of truth. Well, what does that mean? It's a big, big term. What it means is, is, is what Jesus has said in the Bible played out before our eyes? So not only do we declare with absolute certainty that Christ has authority over all creation because he is himself the creator through which all things was created, by which the whole world is upheld by his word and his power, Not only do we we declare that, if we have eyes to see, we look at the world and we read Matthew's, uh, the chapter, chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew, and we see that all of those things that he says are played out in front of us. Destruction left, destruction right, immorality reaping the consequences which it sows. It can't do anything else. It can't last forever. Secularism is a myth, and it is a dying myth. The correspondence view of truth, everything hinges on it. He says, the correspondence understanding of truth makes it possible for testimony to be true. So what Jesus says about the world is accurate. The witness that's, that is submitted corresponds to the way things actually are out there in the world. And when that happens, the witness is true. So truth is fixed, immovable, timeless, and unyielding. It is an everlasting rock. It is also the case that that kind of truth that corresponds to the way things actually are is a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing, but remember, spiritual things have feet. Okay, They're not material in of themselves, but they have feet. Our testimony in its turn, our true testimony in its turn, whatever the occasion, depends on that. If reason, truth, and logic are not grounded in the very nature of God, then everything hopeless. Everything is hopeless and everything falls apart. I've said this before and I've taken it from people that I've listened to, but... The world around us, in order to make any sense of their lives, has to borrow a Christian worldview to make any sense of their lives. You can't live in a way contrary to God's reality and creation. You can't. It's inescapable. Well, there's no objective view of truth. Are you sure? There's no objective law. Are you sure? How about if someone steals your car? What are you going to appeal to at that? Random laws of nature fizzing together, eventually becoming humanity? What difference does it make? It's absolutely meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. Our reality is not defined by our perceptions. Our reality is defined by a transcendent yet imminent God who loves us, who came and revealed himself to us in a book that teaches us about the Savior, his Son. That leads us into point two. Okay, let me reiterate this one more time, though. This voice, this truth, is eternal. It is the voice of a God who is both perfectly just to execute his wrath on the unrepentant and yet perfectly kind in extending grace to us through Christ. 
without this rock, without this truth, we are lost and without hope in the world. The authority to define our reality, ergo truth, comes from the risen Christ. From the risen Christ. Point two, Scripture is authoritative because it reveals the purpose of history. So it reveals the author of history, and now we're going to talk about the fact that it reveals the purpose of history. Okay, Though we don't necessarily need a second point about why Scripture is authoritative, it's enough that God says and we should do as creator, right? Beyond Christ as creator, there is a second point which moves from the created history to the ultimate purpose of it. I want us to see that authority is heaped on top of authority because God did not write the laws of history, just write them, but also directs its course and purpose. Okay, he also directs its course and purpose. And that course and purpose is full communion with him in a kingdom purchased by Christ. John chapter 5 says it this way. Because I don't, sometimes we can read the scriptures, right? And we can take them and not come to worship. And that is not what God intends. That is not what God intends. Our example throughout the scriptures is that of Old Testament Israel. And they are the antithetical example to what a Christian should be in many ways. And one of them is the fact that they knew the law and the scriptures, yet they did not know Christ. That is heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. Paul was heartbroken over it. Read Romans 9. You know, how can someone sit under the absolute authoritative truth of life itself and yet remain in their sin? John chapter 5 says this, verses 26 through 27, read this way, and then I'm going to go down to 37 through 47. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Why can he be a judge? He's the author. Why can he be a judge? He's the author. But listen, this moves us into our historical idea here. He said, this is 37 through 47 in the same chapter. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So it's not a surprise that Christ arrives on the scene in Palestine, Israel, not Palestine, 2,000 years ago in Israel, right? His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Okay? If we don't find Christ when we come to scriptures, we don't find the purpose for which they were given to us. Now history here. God bore witness about Christ before he came, right? God bore witness about Christ before he came. He says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Notice this. Do not think that I accuse you to the Father, the one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. 
But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? All of history post-fall preceding Christ's coming points toward him. All of history after him growing toward his second coming and the consummation of his kingdom. The full display of the victory of Jesus points toward him. Where do we find this and how do we know? The scriptures here tell us that they are about him. Not just him in heaven. Not just the coming Messiah. The one who has come the one who is restoring all things to the Father, the one who is bringing to a consummation, the temple that was in Eden will come back and meet us who know him. We will be restored to that full picture, a better picture that is incapable of sin. We are not here right now without future promises. We are in the same position covenantally as the Jews. We must believe on the promises of God, and look forward to his coming. Okay? What does that look like? Well, we no longer believe that we are the salt and light of the earth, Matthew 5, 13, and 16. Look around us. We no longer believe that the light of Christ has the power to expose darkness, Ephesians 5, 11. We no longer believe that Christ has bound Satan and that his work on the cross has put him to open shame. Matthew 12, 26 through 29, Colossians 2, 15. Or that his kingdom will grow to leaven the whole earth. Matthew 13, 31 through 33. We have lost our way in believing the authority of Christ's words regarding from his first coming to his second coming. We have abandoned that authority. We don't believe him. Let's not do that. Let's find Christ in the scriptures. From the covenant of works with Adam in the garden to the creation covenant with Noah to the covenant with Abraham to the covenant with Moses to the covenant with David, all these promises find their yes and amen in Christ. He is the pinnacle of all history, past, present, and future. He is the true and second Adam, the seed promised to Abraham, the fulfillment of all the righteousness of the law. He is the true king, the son of David, the eternal king of all creation. History is forever altered by his resurrection and the restoration of a greater Eden being delivered on this earth is inevitable. Do you believe that? Do you live like you believe that? All right. So sufficiency of scripture. This flows out of points one and two. Okay, this, this flows out of points one and two about authority. In light of points one and two about authority, Scripture can be and is sufficient to define our reality. Scripture can be and is sufficient to define our reality on every single thing that it speaks about. Your anxiety, your depression, the status of unborn children, all of these things. All right. So then, because Christ is the author of and finisher of our faith, the way, the truth, and the life, and because his purposes and promises will stand in history, as Francis Schaeffer phrased the question, how shall we then live? We must take what's true about the authority of Christ, the authority of Scripture, and it must mean something by how we li- to how we live. Okay, it must This is what the London Baptist Confession says about the sufficiency of Scripture. The whole counsel of God, 
concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. This is what we miss so much. And life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Let's read again verses 24 through 27 here. Get a drink of water. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Great has been the fall of every civilization that has turned its back on Christ. Great is our fall unless we repent. Okay? God is not surprised by this. I think back on those series of questions that I asked today and relate them to these few verses here. That's the reason that I started with those questions, right? These questions need not be debated. They're not debatable. There's no reason to even discuss them other than to explain exactly what the Word says. Okay? They were settled from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 with every declaration of the two words, God said. This statement matter-of-factly and completely destroys any presupposition which stands against it. Everything that the Bible speaks on behind it, behind all of it, is the weight of a holy, righteous, just, merciful, gracious, creator God. It is not that men are ignorant of these things. It is not that men are ignorant of these things. Push hard enough on anyone who denies God's existence and it will come to a moral argument. Men hate God because he calls their deeds evil. That's why they hated Jesus. John chapter 7. Are you now beginning to see that things aren't so difficult to define? I hope so. I hope so. That the proper definitions and principles regarding these questions are no further than the Bible sitting on your lap and are no further than the tapping of an app on your phone. Do you want to learn about the role and extent of government? Visit Romans chapter 1, 13, 1 through 5, 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 17. How, how are you to think about taxation? Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. And what God considers a burdensome amount of taxation. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. Just laws for governing a nation, the entire book of Deuteronomy, which causes other nations to actually envy because the laws are so just, Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 8. A representative republic for executing those laws, Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 27. Laws for quarantining the sick, not the healthy, including seizure of property, Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. The proper reason 
and place for the expression of sexuality. Genesis 1:28, Hebrews 13:4. Marriage, how it's defined, what it looks like. Matthew 19:1 through 13, Ephesians 5:22 through 33. How to raise children. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Proverbs 13, 24, 22, 15, 23, 13 through 14, church government, 1 Timothy, Titus. I mean, on and on and on we could go. How about how to treat, how about this one? How to treat your master when you're a slave. How about how to treat the, your master when you're a slave? Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Or the fact that one can be both a Christian and and a slave owner, and still, still called a beloved brother. Paul's letter to Philemon. That's a touchy one in our culture right now, right? Or how about the slave trade in the West, the fact that it was abominable to God and called for the death penalty for those who would kidnap people against their will, Exodus 21:16. You don't have to look to the stars to figure out how to live your life. You have a book that God has given you if you understand and know him. Look to him. So much of the time we, we were like driven by the wind, myself included. Okay, I'm not, I'm not excluding myself from this. We're driven by every wind of this or that and we're confused. Why are we confused? We're confused because of our own sin and we're confused because we refuse to go to the word. He has given us directions for those things. So we could go on. I could have kept going. But it is not my intention to overwhelm you. It's not my intention to impress you at all by rattling off these passages. Rather, it is my intention to help you see that all you need to live a life glorifying to God through the Holy Spirit as you come to Him by faith is within the reach of your fingertips. Further, we need to bring to the world and live for the good of our city, state, region, and country. All of those things that we need to do that are in exactly the same place. They don't need counseling. They need Christ. We just need the courage to act in our, on it in our own lives and to put away our own shame in telling others they must do the same thing. The gospel is not a request. It's a command. Can we not see now, thinking through this, right, that our culture is built on shifting sand? It's eating itself. This person, you can't pass through enough intersections to be woke enough to not have someone accuse you that they're more woke than you or they've passed through more intersections than you and therefore they have a greater standpoint of truth. We don't look to that. Truth is found in one place and it's in a good God who's revealed himself to us. And he calls other people to repent as well. So, we have a culture and a government that sanctions and promotes the killing of the unborn, the confusion of men and women, as though these things were mutable or could be changed, the redefinition of marriage from between a man and a woman to something which God plainly does not intend. We have a culture who applauds a government spending us into oblivion, that's both Republican and Democrat. We have a culture who supports socialism despite the breaking of at least the 8th and 10th commandment. I want you to see that the scriptures apply to all these things. Okay? Just know that. We have to speak up. 
Christians must not just be defensive in these things. We must be willing to advance the kingdom, not with our words and our strength, not building things on sand, but on the words that are the rock, that are definitional to our reality, the words of Christ. We must, at the cost of our comfort, reputation, and possibly our lives, we, and we must do so with patience and with absolute steadfastness and joy. You're going to be called on to give an account in our culture. I promise you. All of us are. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. I actually am a post-millennialist. I believe that Christ's kingdom is going to advance and leaven the whole world. But if you look at our culture, you know, it goes like this. And I think we're in a pretty big downturn right now. So unless there's repentance, we're not going to see a whole lot of fruit, and we're going to have to give account. But you know what? God promises to grow his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. And that's what we rest our hope on. To conclude today, I want to read uh, Psalm 1. It's my favorite psalm, probably. Uh, and I want you guys to think about this. You can turn there with me if you'd like. I'll turn there so you guys have a chance to turn yourselves or tap. You can move a lot faster if you tap, right? All right, Psalm 1. Blessed, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. See the parallels here, Matthew 7. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So, in summary, recognize Christ as God and the author of all creation. Recognize Christ as God and the author of all creation. Recognize Christ as the pinnacle and purpose of all history, past, present, and future. Know, point three, know that in the midst of chaos, we have a word, the word of Christ, and that word will not return to him void. If we would but believe its sufficiency and authority and speak light into darkness. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come here and consider your word. We know that you are a good and gracious God, uh, that you care for us in ways that we can't even see. God, I pray that we would count our life as little and uh, in our pursuit of you, God, that we would be willing to speak up, that we would not be discouraged by our own sin because you have paid for those things. God, be so discouraged by it that we would, we would fail to seek up out of, speak up out of shame. God, do not allow us to live in shame, but allow us to live in open assurance of Christ. God, I pray that we would build our lives on his word, on the rock that we know it to be, 
Uh, I pray that we would define reality as, as you see fit and that we would not give an inch to anyone else who says otherwise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.